Welcome to UN Catch-Up, Dateline Geneva, your weekly 15-minute wrap of news and interviews from the United Nations. I'm Daniel Johnson, and in this week's show, we're covering the disastrous impact of COVID-19 in North Korea, as told to the Human Rights Council, violence in South Sudan that's the worst since the onset of civil war in 2013, and we'll hear about war photographer Giles Clark's moving portrait campaign showing some of Yemen's displaced millions in partnership with OCHA, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. First, the news bulletin. Disturbing reports have emerged from North Korea, also known as the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, DPRK, that people have starved or been executed because of COVID-19 restrictions. Special rapporteur on the situation of human rights in DPRK, Thomas Ochia Quintana, pointed to a drastic decline in trade and commerce, as well as an increase in the number of children and elderly people forced to beg. Severe containment measures had also led to a number of concerning consequences that further isolate the country's people from the outside world, Mr Quintana said, in a report to the Human Rights Council on Wednesday. Cities had been locked down to prevent coronavirus transmission, while several individuals who were caught breaking anti-epidemic prevention measures were reportedly executed in public, he said. Although the country has no recorded cases of infection, the pandemic has worsened an already bad economic situation in DPRK, the rights expert insisted. Almost all humanitarian work has stopped as the country's authorities have been effectively isolating their people from social, political, economic and even diplomatic engagements, including with the United Nations, Mr Quintana explained. To South Sudan now and an appeal for action from UN member states to end widespread bloodshed in the country almost 10 years after independence. Addressing the Human Rights Council in Geneva, rights expert Yasmin Suka said that levels of violence today were the worst since the onset of civil war in December 2013. This is especially true for people in the states of Central Equatoria, Jonglai, Warap State and Greater Pibor Administrative Area, who is chair of the UN Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan. She highlighted how Hundreds of women and girls had been abducted, raped and forcibly married off last year, adding that all warring groups were to blame. During one attack on a village in Jonglai, at least 140 women and children, including infants, were abducted, along with 175,000 head of cattle. There are now a staggering number of fighters there, tens of thousands of well-coordinated men in this one area, armed with sophisticated military-grade weapons. Abducted boys have been forced to fight. In addition to the militia groups that have murdered and forcibly displaced thousands of civilians after burning entire villages to the ground, Ms Suka underscored the underlying humanitarian crisis that's been aggravated by COVID-19 and recurring floods. Finally, the United Nations Security Council has strongly condemned the violence against peaceful protesters in Myanmar and voiced deep concern at movement restrictions amid ongoing protests at the military takeover last month. In a statement issued on Wednesday night, the 15-member body also reiterated its call for the immediate release of all those detained arbitrarily. The council also expressed the need to uphold democratic institutions and processes and also refrain from violence, while also urging humanitarian access to all those in need, as the situation had the potential to make matters worse in Rakhine State and other regions. According to UN figures, separate from the political strife that has resulted from the 1st of February military takeover, about one million people are in need of support and protection across Myanmar. 
Now, to highlight the world's worst humanitarian crisis, UN aid office OCHA got together with war photographer Giles Clark to tell the stories of some of the millions of people displaced by years of conflict between the government of President Abdrabu Mansor Hadi and mainly Houthi opposition forces. The campaign is called Inside Yemen and Portraits of Resilience. Here's Giles Clark now. So these portraits of resilience are meant to show the side of humanity that we don't often see in these camps, these IDP settlements that are often very difficult to get to. Of course, Yemen itself is very difficult to get to, but to get into some of these more remote camps, it was my goal. And although this one was actually on the edge of Aden, which is slightly more accessible than, or a lot more accessible than many, that's probably why I picked this particular place, because I was able to build up a trust with some of the subjects and address their concerns with a little bit more time one usually has in conflict zones. Maybe set the scene for me. What is it that you see when you arrive at this camp outside Aden? I think one has to remember that there's over 4 million people now displaced within Yemen itself who have been moved and pushed out of various regions and Many of them fled to the south and a number, six, seven hundred thousand of those made their way to from the northern regions, but particularly around Hodeida, which was the port that made the news in 2018. A lot of them came down the coast. You'll see in the Inside Yemen campaign that we created that we wanted to tell the story about this particular movement, this mass movement of people. So when you arrive in these places in Yemen, a lot of these places are very informal. There's no real structure. There's usually a local camp sort of leader, if you like. And the UN are doing their best to try and provide aid at the agencies, local agencies, doing their best to try and provide supplies, WFP and all the different groups that are trying to help these people who are now living very much in limbo, in very rough, crude makeshift shelters. So how long did it take you to build up a rapport with these displaced families in this abandoned school before you can press the shutter? How long does that take? I realize that you're dealing with people who have extraordinary resilience. These people really do have to deal with stuff that we would never have to think about over here in the comfort of our first world countries. And often that takes time. I mean, I first went to Aden in 2018 and I've spent, you know, really weeks in that school over time. Um, And so your face becomes known and people begin to ignore you a bit. So you know you're already sort of on the way to being accepted when you start getting ignored. (laughs) So how does it work? I mean, you're in this setting. Presumably you have a fixer or someone who can speak for you. Especially in this situation, first of all, you don't have much time because you are outside the city. Security situation, that's really what you have to take into the people who are looking after you. In the, in the case of working with Ocha, we are very wary of where we work and what's going on around us. I mean, I have to be in a bubble concentrating on my subjects and on my work, but I also have to be very aware of the situation outside my sphere of vision and you stand out. So you don't want to put anybody you're working with at risk or anybody who you're photographing at risk. So it's a very delicate process. It's always has been. And I suppose trying to get to the heart of the story is the key thing, but bearing in mind all the outside influences, but of course, nothing to what these people have been through. Do any stories really stand out of the many who you photographed? Well, the reason why I I actually went to this school in the first place was because I had found a two-year-old boy. Two years ago, I found a two-year-old boy who I was following. I'd been in Al-Sadaka Hospital, the, the severe acute malnutrition ward 
which is just a couple of miles away from the abandoned school, which is now the IDP settlement with 700 plus families. But I'd been going to the school to visit this little boy and his parents were living in the school and his name was Fawaz. Um, So when Fawaz was strong enough to be discharged from hospital, having spent almost three months there, I got to know the family and I was invited to their home, which was the school, which is now home to 700 families. That was very jarring to see. And obviously the amount of people who were living under this in this tent camp within the confines of the school was fairly shocking. So I, that's how I got to know the school. And through that, I met a number of people who wanted to talk. And so certainly last time, before I went on this very last trip, the trip before that, I would just walk through the camp, often not photographing, just meeting people. And I came to realize that everybody has a story. Everybody wanted to share their story. And I found that really interesting. I found the resilience of what they'd been through was the thing that I was left with. So when I came back this time, I had an idea that I would try and somehow tell the story. But of course, I have to, everything's different. One day you go and photograph and everything's fine. The next day, maybe a male member of the camp doesn't want you there. And so there's a lot of, be very wary of just the moods. I mean, obviously things are very tense there as well. I mean, you don't really want to walk in and sort of show yourself as just taking. And, you know, so it's a lot of, it's just a delicate situation. Do you feel in some ways that you are a spokesperson for the wider world? I mean, you're not a UN staffer, but you must have to come up against claims that they say the UN's not actually doing anything. What do you say to them? Yeah, I'm not a UN staffer, uh, but I've worked with the UN for many years on various front lines all over the world. And of course, you're dealing with people, beneficiaries and people who are displaced, people who are traumatised by war and suffering from abject poverty. And yes, there is anger towards the UN. There's anger towards governments. There's anger towards me. But I think all of that is understandable. I think most of what we hear about these countries, we don't really understand until you're there quite what they're going through. So yes, I have been talked to in (laughs) stern ways by a number of people who are there on the ground, but you know, one has to listen and one has to understand. War photographer Giles Clark there, and you can hear the longer version of that interview on UN News forward slash Audio Hub now. And you can find his photo campaign on the web by doing a simple search for the title Inside Yemen, Faces of Resilience. You're listening to UN Catch-Up, Dateline Geneva, with me, Daniel Johnson. Let's turn quickly to regular guests, Solange Beartege-Cortez and Alpha Diallo from UN Geneva's Information Service. Hello to both of you. Hi, Dan. Hi, Alpha. Bonjour, Dan. Hello, Solange. Super to hear your voices. And let's start with you, if I may, Solange. I thought that Giles Clark was pretty frank and honest there in the interview. It's a tough job and it stays with you. Yeah, I think... Being a photographer in Yemen, the country with the worst humanitarian crisis, according to the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, must be something that marks you forever. After all, war is hell. But for Giles Clark, the hardest thing was coming back home and start working with pictures that were taken days, weeks, months before. Photographs are experience captured. They are bits of life. And when Giles Clark sees his Yemen pictures at home, at nine, he is on his own, alone. But the photographs are telling him stories. What matters more is not what we see, 
but the way we see it. In some cultures, indigenous people believe that if you take a picture of them, you're going to steal their soul. And in one of her most famous essays, Susan Sontag said that to photograph people is to violate them by saying them as they never see themselves, by having knowledge of them that they can never have. Without a doubt, a photograph is one of the most mysterious objects in the modern world. I saw Giles Clark's work on the OCHA website on my computer, in the office, while I was having lunch. What a bad idea. Malnourished children, injured, rings everywhere. I could see the scars left by the war. And at the same time, I couldn't avoid to notice the beauty of the photos, their human side. I understood why he named them the portraits of resilience. An image talks. And if I would have wanted, I could have had a conversation with these photographs. Thank you, Solange. And to you, Alpha, what did you make of Giles Clark's encounters with displaced people living precariously in Yemen? It's basically the story of the war, isn't it? Sure, Dan. I, I listened to the interview of Mr. Clark and I told myself that despite Yemen war, Ten of thousands of migrants try to reach a country every year, hoping to find work in Saudi Arabia. And according to the UN Migration Agency, African migrants are mostly from the Horn of Africa. They make the dangerous journey from countries like Somalia and Ethiopia to Djibouti before boarding vessels to Yemen. But then COVID-19 has led to increased mobility restrictions resulting in a reduction of the number of arrivals from over 138,000 in 2019 to just over 37,000 in 2020. This past January, 2,500 migrants reached Yemen from Djibouti. That is a significant drop already. Amazing, really, that people are still travelling through a war zone to find work. But even before they get to Yemen, it's well known that many of the young men who set off from Djibouti have put their lives at risk just getting there. And that's before they pay traffickers to get them across the Gulf of Aden. Two tragic events illustrate the drama of migrants in Yemen. A fire broke out Sunday in a detention centre for migrants in Yemen's capital, Sana, killing at least eight people. The UN Migration Agency said last week done at least 20 people have drowned after smugglers pushed dozens of migrants overboard last week during their journey from Djibouti to Yemen. Then this was a third such incident on the Gulf of Aden in six months. Yes, and we reported on that drama, that uh, awful story last week in UN News, and you can follow that story on the UN News platform if you like. Thank you very much then, Alpha and Solange, for your thoughts as ever. But time's up, so we have to go. We will be back with another UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva next week. Many thanks to Justine Bryce for her help on the production side and to all of you listening, wherever you are. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>